Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets, And of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We come now to Revelation chapter 22 and to the final chapter of this great scripture. And in it would have been tying up some of the loose ends Resolving and fulfillment of some things that we have been waiting for a long time. Perhaps you remember way back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, this promise that the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. That was the promise. The fact that Christ would lead us to this water is a great promise. It is a wonderful promise. It is itself in that fulfillment of Psalm 23, Christ is the great shepherd leading us into the the still waters, before the still waters. But we didn't see its fulfillment back then. We didn't see its completion. 
We didn't see how it was going to happen or the full nature of these things. And then far more recently, just in the previous chapter in, verse, in chapter 21, verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. That was the great invitation. I will do this. I will give this living water to those who thirst. And we consider just a little bit of what that meant. And the fact that Christ was freely offering this living water to anyone who wants it, that's truly amazing. What a wonderful picture of the generosity of God in the gospel, the free gospel of grace to anyone who thirsts, anyone who wants it. But what exactly is this water and where does it come from? Well, that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 22, where we see that there's this great and broad and deep river of life that proceeds from the Father and from the Son, and that it gives life and health to all that it touches. And we'll consider more of what these things mean. Now, beyond that, rivers very often have trees around them, living nearby, and all the more in the Middle East. I don't know if anyone's, some of us have visited, and we've seen it's not a, a place that has as much water naturally as a place like England. And there are trees where there is water. There's, there are trees by a river. And so it is that this river, around it there are trees, and specifically what is mentioned, this tree of life, something that we heard of as well a long time ago, way back in Genesis. More recently, a long time ago in our series, in Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. But again, we didn't see its fulfillment. We heard the promise, we saw the shadow, but now we see it in its final situation in the new heavens and the new earth. And all this is due, this river and the tree and the fruit that comes from it, all this is from the water of life. This water which is the Holy Spirit whom Christ gives free access to. It's all flowing from him. It is the source of that, the access to that, comes from Christ himself. He gives this greatest of gifts, the Holy Spirit, that gives life to all that it touches and makes fruitful those things that live in its life-giving water. So this morning we consider the river of life. We'll speak of these three points, of the river itself, the water and the tree, the river, the water, and the tree. So first, the river. It says in verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, as I mentioned, there is much in the Old Testament that has to do with some hinting of this river of life, even in in Genesis itself, something we may not give much attention to. It's just a hint here in Genesis 2.10 that a river went out of Eden to water the garden. But much, much, much more so that we see something in the prophet Ezekiel. And I, I do intend without apology to read at length this section from Ezekiel because it more than anything else can explain what Scripture itself means. Scripture is its own interpreter. God gives us these things and in Revelation we know that very often these are just tokens. They are explained more fully. The language is explained more fully in Scripture and John is expecting us to know these things and we ought to know these things. So I'll read to you from Ezekiel 47. 
And when then he brought me to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. In verse 3, And when the man went out, this is the angel, went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. He measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. And he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water, and the water came up to my waist. And he measured 1,000. It was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And I returned there. Along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, whether, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a great, very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the water goes. Now just let the thing sink in your mind of what it is saying. It is a river proceeding from this temple that has Christ as its center, this great picture always of the, the presence of God among us, of Emmanuel. It comes from him. And this water of life, though it can be entered only at ankle depth, the further you go, the deeper it gets. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it is unfathomable. It has no end. It carries on and on. And all those whom it touches, all those whom it comes in contact, it gives life, it heals. Those who are sick, it heals. Those who are dead, it brings to life. And those who are in it swim in this source of life. And they are perfectly alive in it. Everything will live wherever this river goes. Well, this, of course, is a picture of the giving of the Holy Spirit through Christ. It is a picture of the gospel of grace that goes out into the world that through the power of the Holy Spirit brings life to all who receive it. And this river then, this wonderful picture, this reality is to be in the new heavens and the new earth where we forever are in and benefit from this river of the water of life. Now notice, of course, it is a pure crystal, a a a pure river. It is clear as crystal. And uh, we don't need to strain our brains too much to consider it. But just understand that water, of course, is very rarely pure. It's very hard. You know that that water is considered to be the universal solvent. If there's anything around it at all, even in the air that, that could possibly contaminate it, then the water itself will be like that. And I'm sure that whoever cleaned this glass for me did a good job, and whoever poured the water did a good job. But even still, if we were to look very carefully, we'd see all the impurities in it because it is very, very difficult to get entirely pure water. And in fact, something that may not be noticeable in such a small amount, if you had a whole great swimming pool, if this this place were filled with it, you might be able to detect that little bit of cloudiness, those impurities in it, the more that you have it. But here in this great broad river, none of these impurities are to be seen whatsoever. It is perfectly clear. It is clear as crystal because there's nothing impure in it whatsoever. This water that is coming is pure. And therefore this river is pure and clear as crystal. 
Now we know that one of the things, if you ever come to a river and you see that it is cloudy, and there are many such rivers in this world, it is not a good idea to drink from it. It's a natural human inclination, perhaps in the grace of God, that we understand that. And that we need to do something. We need to purify that water before we can drink of it because it might just give us some dread disease. But on the other hand, if you come to a, a spring where the water is, is utterly clear coming from it, very often you'd rightly guess that this is water that's not going to do you harm. It's, it's life-giving water. Well, that is the nature of this water, that it is, it is pure, it is clear as crystal. And unlike every philosophy made of man, unlike every religion that has ever come from the heart of sinful man, there is nothing contaminated in it. There is nothing that is going to give you a disease. There is nothing that is going to bring you into death. Rather, we have this purity, this clarity. A reminder, by the way, that in its essence, though, though human teachers may not be able to articulate it as clearly as they ought to, in its essence, this which comes from God is pure and clear, as clear as crystal. And even to a child, it can be made completely clear. Because there's nothing obscure in the heart of the matter. Yes, there are many things that are difficult because God himself is incomprehensible. And we in our, in our state, in our limited state, cannot comprehend all the wonderful things that, that God gives to us. But in his essence, in his life-giving essence, the gospel is as clear as crystal. And we can all understand the, under, the, the beautiful idea of though we are sinners, that Christ has sent his son to die, that all who might believe in him should live. This water is clear as crystal. And, and you know, it is of the opposite of what we saw in Revelation 8.10. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. It's the opposite of that, of this bitter, poisonous water that if you drink from that, you'll surely die. But rather, it's something that will give you life. Again, that is what Christ offers to us in the gospel, something that is pure, something that is without contamination of anything false, but something that is purely life-giving. That's this river of life. Now, secondly, the water of life. Because it is a pure river of water of life. It is both of those things. It is a river that is comprised of the water of life. And it proceeds from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Now we know that Christ is the source of this water of life. I'm reminded from the John series, which now seems a while ago, that I remember speaking of something that I almost wanted to call the missing I am statement in John. Maybe you remember it from John chapter 4. And Jesus is speaking to the woman of Samaria. And they've come to this well. And there's this water, this pitcher, this God-given pitcher of what it is that he's talking about spiritually. And Jesus answered and said to her in verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But this water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And as you could go on to see from those things that Christ is pointing to this picture. And he is saying that this is a perfect picture of what I'm going to do for you. 
Because water is absolutely required for life. You cannot live without it. And I'm going to give that to you. In fact, if you believe in me, there will be a fountain springing up in you of everlasting life. This permanent source of life-giving water spiritually will be in you. But it is not exactly an I am statement. Unlike when he said, I am the bread of life. He does not actually say, I am the water of life. Because the thing is that Christ was not himself that water, but was rather the source of that water, you see. He who believes in me, in him will become, they will spring up this fountain of living water. (coughs) He was that rock in the desert that Moses struck, you remember that. He's the rock that Moses struck in Exodus 17.6. Behold, I will stand before you there on that rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, And the water that will come out of it that the people may drink. And that's what he did. And that's what happened. He struck the rock and the rock was Christ. And what came from the rock was water. This water that was life-giving. And likewise we see then in the end of the Gospel of John. In John 19.34. As he was dead. As he had been crucified. And he was on the cross. And they came to him with that spear. And what did they do? One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came flowing out. And so it is that in our text, the water is flowing from Christ. He is not himself that water. He is intimately connected with that water. He is the one who gives us access to that water. He is the source of that water, the the one through whom that water flows. The water is something else. The water is the Holy Spirit. John 7.37, we brought this up recently in another sermon in Revelation, and I'll remind you again. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That is just the words that we have in Revelation 21. It is just the words that we have in Revelation 22. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, just like he said, In John chapter 4. Now here's the explanation. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, where the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What he is speaking of is the Holy Spirit. Those who believe in Christ would be given this Holy Spirit, would be given this source of living water, would be given the water itself. And as we saw before, this water, it proceeds from the throne of God and from the Lamb because the Spirit himself proceeds from both the Father and also the Son. I won't go into the details, but some of you will know that that is a long-standing issue in the history of Christian theology. Does does the Spirit proceed just from the Father or does he also proceed from the Son? And I think it's very clear in all of Scripture that he proceeds from both the Father and the Son. From the Son. And it is one of the wonderful and most important things that Christ does for us in redemption is that He gives to us, He sends for us this Holy Spirit who proceeds from Him as well as from the Father. Now, water is a great picture for the Spirit of God. We understand that fundamentally the Spirit is Spirit, 
And, and obviously we have the spirit of being likened to wind, to air, like in John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but it cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. It is, it is invisible. His actions are felt. And also in Acts 2, 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of him being the breath of life, of him being the air and the wind, of course, that's very fundamental. But right up there with him, right up there with that picture would surely be water as well. Something that, like air, is transparent, right? Something like like air and the, the waves, they don't seem like much, but they're able to accomplish so great things that given enough time, the, the waves will, will work on absolutely anything, and move things out of the way entirely. And so it is with the Spirit of God. It's water, as I mentioned, this universal solvent. What's wonderful about that is it's used for cleaning. You can clean things with water. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The essence of the, the Holy Spirit is He is holy. He's a source of holiness. And this water of the Spirit comes and cleans us out. Of course, as I said, He's a source of all life, as is all is water. You don't know of life apart from some kind of water. And that is the Holy Spirit. And he is pictured here in our text as flowing out in unlimited abundance and free access. Because this water of life, it is not as we might have appeared uh, and imagined in our, our human mythology. You know, you have these... Um, semi-serious attempts to find the fountain of, of life in the history of exploration. And the idea was to find some place in which you, you have a limited amount of this and you could come and you could bottle it and you could sell it and, and distribute it and so forth. But here it's not a, a, merely a fountain. It is, in fact, a river flowing out from Christ. <coughs> And it is unlimited. And those who want it can take all that they want of the water of life in this river. Thirdly, there is the tree of life. It's a river of life. It consists of the water of life. That is the Holy Spirit. It comes from Christ. But there's water of life. It comes and it has its effects. It does something. Because in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And here we must understand that ordinary trees do not yield something every month. If you happen to have a kind of fruit tree that has two different fruiting seasons, you say that is a wonderfully fruitful tree because very often we find that it's just once per year. So if you have two per year, then that's wonderful. I've, I've heard that there may be some trees out there that would have even a third. I'm not sure about that. But every single month, bringing out its fruit. That is an exceedingly, excessively fruitful tree. And that is the nature of what happens when you are around this river, when you partake of this water of life that you become exceedingly and manifestly fruitful. Now perhaps you understand, of course, this far more even than the picture of the river. You have the, this picture of the tree way back at the beginning of all things in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. And we have to go back there to understand the significance of this tree and of our access to it. We can't really understand what's so wonderful until we understand the situation in Genesis chapter 3. 
Because after the fall of man, after sin, after the, confirm, the, the condemnation and confrontation, and after the man and the woman and the serpent were all punished, we go to Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, to experience it. Now let him put out his hand and let him also... And, and lest he now put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were denied access to that tree. That tree was there in the garden of Eden. But they, in their sin, were denied access to it. They were cast out of the garden. They were not only cast out, but there were then these angelic guards, these cherubim placed at the entrance, lest they come back. And just for good measure, there's a flaming sword around about that tree of life. It is the absolute opposite of free access. It is something utterly forbidden, something utterly denied mankind from that point on. And that is the last we see of it. All of Scripture, up until Revelation, there's not another thing mentioned of it. It's as if it disappeared. It's as if, if somebody, all those people, all of God's people who read that, wondered what happened to that tree. If we'd ever see that tree again, if there'd ever be access to this tree, or whether that flaming sword would be around it forever, to forever be denied to take of its fruit. And here then in the finality and the completion and fulfillment of all things in Revelation, we we hear about it again. We hear that it does exist, but this time there's no sword around it. There's no guard keeping us from getting there. But we are freely permitted to come to it. This tree is not dead. This tree is very much alive, producing this wonderful, continuous crop of fruit. Well, how do we explain these things? We explain them that mankind in our fallen condition, well, we were denied access, direct access to that tree. And there is no way that we could ever come directly to that tree as sinners. There is no way that through the covenant of works, which is what God had made with Adam and Eve, in the situation of simply do what I ask you to do and you'll have life. And they were forbidden exactly one thing. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they couldn't even do that much. And they could never then come directly and receive eternal life. There was no direct access from them of their own works to receive of it. It had to be something else. And that had already been explained to them. In, in Genesis chapter 3, that it could only come through the seed of the woman. That is the only way this was going to work. That through Christ they would one day be given access to these things. They would take and they would eat and they would be given everlasting life, not because of themselves, but because of what Christ has opened to them. Now the nature of this tree of life, as I would said, the main thing about it, the thing that is brought to our attention is that it bears fruit and not just a little bit, it bears lots of it. There are tangible results from it. And when we consider this water of life, when we consider the Holy Spirit, we must absolutely understand and have set in our mind that if the Spirit is around, there will be effects from it. 
The Spirit himself is invisible. We cannot directly observe this Holy Spirit. He's transparent. He doesn't bring glory to himself. He brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Stays, as it were, in the background. But his effects are very real, very powerful. Like the wind, like the water, his effects will be known. And the effects are known in fruit. And we'll say more of this in our application. But that is the thing to set in our mind, that this tree of life that was forbidden from us, this life-giving thing that is now given to us in the new heavens and the new earth through Christ, This Holy Spirit is a fruitful thing. So, let's consider these applications, (coughs) which we could go on and on. But first, we'd simply say, we ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If this is indeed the source of holiness, if it is indeed the source of fruitfulness and abundant life, then we need more of it. This is the great need of, uh, that we have. This is the thing. Indeed, if this is the thing that was purchased by Christ at such great expense, if this is the thing that he's already gone on, he's talked about the gold and the gems, but we've, we've now shifted into high gear. We have moved on to the highest and greatest and deepest of things in heaven, and we've come to this river of the water of life. And if this is indeed the Holy Spirit that has in fact been poured out to us, In Pentecost, our great desire, our great need, the great thing above all things to have in this life is the Holy Spirit and more of it. Now, I'm I'm not sure that I've heard a sermon on being filled with the Spirit outside of a charismatic church. And that's, that's a shame to us in the Reformed Church. Of course, the problem in the charismatic church is that they'll speak of this as if it were some second blessing, a second level of the, of the Christian life that is not given to all. That's not true. And, of course, they would be fascinated and, and preoccupied with the unusual and the spectacular, like the gift of speaking in, in other languages, the gift of tongues, the things which Paul in Corinthians speaks of as if these were childish little things that... He's had and doesn't mind whether he has them or not. It doesn't make a difference because they aren't the highest and greatest and deepest of things, not things to be greatly desired. And even worse, when they can't get the real thing, we know that there are many miraculous signs given to establish the word of God when it was first given, that these miraculous signs accompany the true prophets and apostles of the Lord in in ways that they might be established and known to be true. But when they can't get these things, and they have to content themselves with false phenomena and generated through various human and psychological means. And in these respects, they're wrong, very wrong. But in one respect, they're right. They understand the centrality of the spirit for the human life, for the Christian life, for fruitfulness, and for all good things. They come by the power and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. That much they know. And they understand if there's something to be very, really good, if there's something to be of spiritual and lasting significance, it won't come from the world. It won't come from ourselves. It will and must come from the Spirit. And what about us? That's the question. What about us? So how convinced are we that we ought to also be filled with the Spirit, that this is the great 
and summation of our Christian lives. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I would say next, what does it mean? Well, again, for those from a charismatic background, the ordinariness of what I'm about to say might surprise you. But consider what it says in Galatians 5.22, the famous fruit of the Spirit passage. What does it say? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that are in evidence when the Spirit is at work. You say, that's not very supernatural. That's not very extraordinary. That's not very spectacular. I don't think maybe you understand the nature of these things. Because if you understood them, you would understand how rare they are. You'd understand how impossible that any sinful human being could truly produce these things. You'd understand just how proof positive that a life characterized by these things you know has certainly been touched by the Holy Spirit. Look at, in fact, look at how the kingdom of God is characterized in Romans 14, uh, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the way the character of the, the kingdom of God is summed up in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure what world you live in. But these things are not ordinary. These things are not the character of what we find in, in the world. It's anything but that. It's unrighteousness and sin. It is anxiety and war. It is, it is not joy at all. It is sadness and despair. And every once in a while, a fleeting false picture of these things may, may happen. But it's not true. It's not real. It's not lasting. Where these things are to be found, you know for certain that the almighty, omnipotent Holy Spirit has been at work, doing his work. That is so powerful. It can make even sinners like us to be characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You know, Ephesians 5 is often used to talk about being filled with the Spirit, and, and rightly so, but it's not always taken in context. It's not always understood as the way it's given to us in Scripture. But take another look in Ephesians 5.18. It says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Amen. But they stop there. What does that mean? Does it mean speaking in tongues? No. Keep reading. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the specification. That's the description of what being filled with the Spirit is like. Joyful, thankful, spiritual worship. Because that's the impossible thing that God's children have been called to do. It is utterly impossible to have that kind of worship if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you are... And that's your kind of worship. You're going to be able to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're going to be able to sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for not some things. You see, that's the difference, isn't it? The people in the world, they can give thanks for winning the lottery. They can give thanks for holidays. They can give thanks for new cars. But they can't give thanks for all things. And the only way that you will ever be able to give thanks for all things if you are filled with the Spirit. And when you can do that, you know that this is the evidence of the Spirit working in you. All things. The things that are so wonderful, 
and the deep trials that God sends in his goodness to his own people. That's proof positive of the Spirit in you. Now, of course, we understand that those who are called by God, for instance, to be ministers of the word, there's going to be a manifestation, a specific manifestation of being filled with the Spirit in those terms, like it happens in Acts 4.8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, so the filling with the Holy Spirit is, is shown in their declaring the word of God, because that's what they've been called to do. But I want you to understand that that is true with all of our callings. That to be able to do what you're called to do requires the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll mention in just a moment how this works in our vocations, but I would just say, generally speaking, this happens in our being called to be joyful. That's one of the great callings, you know, of the, of the Christian life, is simply to be, to be joyful. Just in equal terms as what we heard of Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit in order that he might preach, equally we hear in Acts 13.52 that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's the specification there. The way that they were being filled with the Holy Spirit is that they were full of joy. The disciples, the ordinary believers, the rank and file, they were filled with the Holy Spirit because they were filled with joy. And you must not underestimate the significance of your joy. You must not misunderstand just how important it is. Because there's a reason why we're commanded over and over and over again to rejoice. Why Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And that's by far the only, that's not the only commandment along those lines. Why? What if joy is something that's really, may not be important to you. But what if joy is something really, really important to God himself? What if that's one of the main, the, the fruit that he greatly and mainly desires from us? You know, you think of a gardener planting a garden. What sort of things you put there? If you, you hate hydrangeas, you don't put hydrangeas there. If you love roses, you put roses there. If you want apples, and you plant apples there, and all the rest of it. The flower and the fruit that you want, that you expect at the, the net process, at the end of all these things, after all of your hard work, the things that you want, those are the things that you're going to put in that garden. What if the fruit that God wants from us is joy? What if at immense cost, at the expense of the blood of his son, he desires from us? Now, it's not easy. It's not easy, is it, to get joy from, from miserable people such as ourselves. And the condition that he finds us, he finds us in a condition of sin and of darkness. We're in slavery. We're in despair. It's not going to be easy. But what if through this almighty, powerful Holy Spirit, he is able to do the work of bringing us into a condition of joy? That's what he wants from us. It's not going to be easy. He paid a high price. But that's the great fruit that he desires. Now along with it, and equally so, it's of course holiness. It's joy in his holiness. That's the other main fruit that God is looking for. And it's no, by no means easy either. That's a little bit more obvious to us, I think, of its importance. A little bit more obvious about its difficulty. But of course, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He is holy and he brings holiness. And that's the great thing that God is looking for as well. In Ephesians 1.4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The election, don't, don't stop with election. Bear election to salvation because that's not the end of it. He elected us 
And he put in place a whole work of redemption in order that we get so- he gets something from it. And what is it that he gets from us? And that's holiness, you see. In order that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And First Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is it that he wants from us? He wants your sanctification in all the things, all the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and, and perfect holiness. And it all comes from the Holy Spirit. And these are the things that we're going to have to the nth degree in heaven. Because if there's one problem in this life now, though we have the Holy Spirit, yet for various reasons, particularly because of the old man of sin that we carry around with us, we do not have him in, in, in infinite uh, completion. We do not have him in all the fullness, in all the intensity, in all the, the quantity in some sense that we can and one day will have in heaven. There we will encounter the Holy Spirit as this great broad river flowing down the middle of the street with no restriction, no tap turning him down, no attempting to resist the Holy Spirit, no grieving the Holy Spirit in our sin, just this infinite flow. And all this fruit will come from it. So finally, what should we do? I think we should ask for the Spirit. If we should desire to be filled with the Spirit, we should ask for it. You know, we're, Luke eleven nine says, I say to you, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Again, sometimes people forget what the end of all that is. Yes, knock and you shall find, it will be open to you to seek and you shall find. But what is it? What is the thing that is being said? What is it that is being held up as the ultimate of good gifts? It is the Holy Spirit. That's the thing. Now, we are promised absolutely everything in eternity, but here it's not so. Here there are going to be occasions that we're going to pray and we may not receive the thing that we want because we're not sure it's God's will. We can pray for a specific job and we may or may not get it. We can pray for a husband or wife, children, so forth. We may not get them. But one thing that we can be absolutely assured of is that if we ask for the Holy Spirit... We'll get him. And that's the epitome of the good gift. That's the thing beyond which nothing more could be desired. Because in order to be saved in the first place, you must have the Holy Spirit. I mentioned that this gospel, which is so, it's in some sense, it's of infinite depth, yet it is so clear. And yet it can be entered even at ankle deep by, by the smallest child who's able to hear these words. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. God has made a way for you. You're a sinner, yes, but he's made a way through Christ. It doesn't require your work. It doesn't require your earning salvation. It only requires your faith, just believing in Christ, and you'll be saved. And that is so easy and clear. But to believe that, you've got to have the Holy Spirit. So in some sense, as you pray for this great gift, as you pray for the thing, you understand that if you're outside of Christ, you're praying for your own salvation. 
Because the Spirit of God will work that faith in you. Now, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not going to be saved because Romans 8, 8 says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, you just cannot do it. You cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. It's simple as that. You've got to have the Spirit to be saved. And moreover, to be holy, to proceed in your sanctification, to carry on in the things that you've been given to do, you absolutely must have the Spirit. As we have in First Peter 1, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God and this, of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That this whole process by which that we're going to be fruitful Christians, we know that we're going to be, if we're in Christ, we'll certainly be fruitful. But the only way that happens is by the Spirit who enables us to do that. And I mentioned before, the only way we're going to be able to carry out our vocations is that. Now, I mentioned we have the obvious example of those who are set aside for the Word. You've got to be, obviously, filled with the Spirit in order to do that. But maybe not so obviously, but just as true in every vocation. To do it to Christ, unto the glory of God, to do it for Christ's sake, to do it in order that you might have eternal rewards, because these are things are do, that are done not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, You've got to be filled with the Spirit as well. So interesting, isn't it? In Exodus 31, 2, where the Lord says, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. What, in order that he might be a priest? In order that he might be a prophet? No. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze and these other things. Now, of course, it is possible to do those things in the flesh, but ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you something else. It is possible to preach the word of God in the flesh. There is no vocation that cannot in some way be done in the flesh, sown in the flesh, and you're reaping in the flesh as well, all by human works, all by human motivations, and all the rest of it. And likewise, to do any vocation, whether working with your hands, being a teacher, whatever it might be, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do that to the glory of God. Now, beyond these things individually, of course, it is the case for our whole church as we, we're, we're beginning this new year and we have these plans for church planting and all the rest of it. How is it going to happen? For the growth of our church, for the growth of our covenant children, of, of being, them being brought to faith and reaching the world around us with the gospel, for the planting of other churches, we have got to be blessed with as great as a blessing of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here again, I must read you something from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 verse 1, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And I must say, sometimes I look out from my house into a valley, and I see it as a valley full of dry bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Very many, very dry. That's the situation of these bones. And that's our situation in the world around us. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Because he's not filled with confidence looking at these dry bones that they can live. And we're not always filled with confidence that those around us can be brought to spiritual life either. 
And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And says a Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I'll put sinews on them and flesh upon them to cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I'm the Lord. So here's what he does. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And so that the word of God in itself is complete. He does as he's commanded. He, he preaches to them. And there's these signs of life, but there's no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army, because it is the Spirit of God alone who can give life to those who are dead, those who are slain in sin. If these things are to happen, if there is to be a church in Hexham, and all the rest of the things that we desire, it must be because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the best of gifts. What more could the good Heavenly Father give to us beyond His only begotten Son who opens the way that we might have this river of life, who died for us in Calvary, and His Spirit then that is poured out for us in Pentecost, the source of all life and breath, of all health and all peace and joy and thankfulness and love? What more could we desire? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so gracious. We consider, Lord, what we have done ourselves, what we human beings have done. Lord, we have gotten ourselves thrown out of Eden, guarded on every side, and a, a sword, a flaming sword, guarding our way to this tree. And there is no, no life within us. We are a valley of dry bones as we are in ourselves. There is nothing to help us. There is no source of life. There is no water at all, just dryness. But you and your, your graciousness, you and your wonderful plan to bring forth fruit from these people who were once dead, Lord, you have opened the way of salvation through Christ. You have given us access, free access to the water of life that whoever wants to drink from this water may drink. And how we pray, Lord God, that this would be our great ambition, and those who are outside of Christ, and above all things would wish to drink of this water and be given life, eternal life through it. And those who are in Christ would understand that there is nothing now, they could not do beforehand anything in the flesh of eternal value, and even now they cannot do anything outside of Christ, outside of the Holy Spirit at all. But in order to do the things that you've called us to do, we must be filled with your spirit. In order for us to do the things that you've called us to do as a church, we must be filled with your spirit. And how we ask, Lord, that you would grant to us, knowing that you are not a stingy father, but rather a gracious heavenly father who gladly gives us this greatest of gifts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.